welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast and today we're going to look at asthma. In reality I find this is much more commonly discussed than actually seen in real life and I'm talking about kind of the real life threatening asthma here. No doubt this is due in part to an improvement in kind of asthma care chronically which is of course a good thing. Um, I think it gets discussed and comes up in exam papers so much partly because it's such a nice illustration of physiology and ventilation. I am guilty of probably over-teaching in this subject myself, having delivered not one but two lectures on the subject and even done a prior tasty morsel of emergency medicine on the subject, all linked to in the show notes. O's manual here devotes a whole chapter number 35 to the subject of asthma. So we definitely see much less of this than we used to, and I suspect that's largely due to better access and provision of primary care. But there does remain a cohort of fairly brittle folk out there who will occasionally crop up in your resource or intensive care unit. So to begin with, let's cover some of the etiology and pathophysiology. So asthma has a well-described allergic and atopic association, as we all learned in medical school, but also some important environmental triggers, such as the now kind of infamous thunderstorm asthma that occurred in Australia some years back, with thousands of patients affected all within a very, very short time period of hours due to a local thunderstorm. There are several major consequences of severe asthma that O's manual describes. So number one, increased work of breathing. So dynamic hyperinflation is a big part of that. Um, Number two, VQ mismatch and shunting. That's definitely going to contribute to hypoxia. And number three, cardiovascular instability from raised intrathoracic pressure. So the term status asthmaticus is a term commonly found in the textbooks, but I don't think it is anywhere near of the kind of diagnostic and management utility of its Latin equivalent status epilepticus. O applies the term status asthmaticus to those not responding to nebulized bronchodilators, but that's really very a broad description, so I don't find it that helpful. When it comes to management of asthma like this, this life-threatening asthma, the mainstay of treatment is inhaled beta agonists, um, probably with a chaser of ipratropium and some steroids. There's plenty of evidence suggesting that a simple inhaled beta agonist with a measured dose inhaler um, can be as effective as nebulization. but for the ICU level asthma, which this post is aimed at, you will be reaching for an oxygen-driven nebulizer, aiming to get particle sizes somewhere in the 1 to 3 micron range all the way down to the alveoli. However, it's well known that less than 10% of the drug gets delivered to target and it's likely that in the most severe asthmatics where very little gas is moving, that the drug delivery is going to be even worse. Hence the existence of all the intravenous therapies. So all of these are controversial on some level and I'm not here to advocate for one over the other but more to provide a kind of a pithy line or two that one could easily throw into an SAQ or a Viver answer and look somewhat smart. So to start with IV salbutamol, it's commonly used in the UK and Ireland, but like pretty much all of these therapies, you couldn't say it has a robust evidence base. There have been concerns expressed um, that it adds a significant metabolic load to the work of breathing, because inevitably you're going to get a rise in lactate, you're going to get a fall in base excess, and that's going to lead to an increased minute volume, okay, so your respiratory compensation. Um, And that's going to put an increased burden on the respiratory system, which is already overburdened um, by the respiratory pathology at play. IV magnesium is likely more benign and certainly it's given out extremely commonly in these cases but once again the evidence base is hardly stellar. IV adrenaline is a common go-to and has some physiological rationale beyond just flogging the already overstimulated beta agonists. It does have an alpha agonist effect which may have beneficial effects on secretion burden and mucus plugging which is a known issue in asthmatics. Aminophilin continues to be used though anecdotally I've not really seen it to be that helpful. Um, Heliox often crops up in the textbooks as it allows for the kind of Goldilocks phenomenon of laminar flow of gas that might reduce work of breathing. However, given the limitations of 
the FiO2, generally somewhere around 30%. You'll find it in kind of a 30% oxygen, 70% um, helium mix. It's not really a great gas option in a population where hypoxia is a real concern. No post would be complete without mentioning of the crowd-favourite ketamine and its potential bronchodilating properties. It is likely overstated, um, but as an induction drug, um, it would certainly seem very, very reasonable to give. Inhalational anaesthetics are somewhat similar, um, but importantly, likely to be inaccessible when you need them. So let's say you've failed all these therapies and a tube has gone in. So how would one ventilate such a patient? The answer is probably with great difficulty. Um, if it turns out that they're actually completely easy to ventilate with normal airway pressures and you've got no gas trapping, then you have probably just intubated someone with vocal cord dysfunction. Sometimes this is called paradoxical vocal cord motion. Um, it's worth another post perhaps, but it can be a common mimic of life-threatening asthma. And you will see every now and again, you'll come in in the morning and one of the people has been asked and inverted commas have been intubated for the seventh time and they typically have vocal cord dysfunction. More likely you'll find yourself faced with a ventilator that's complaining loudly that all of the airway pressures are too high um, and if lucky you'll sort things out before the inevitable cardiovascular collapse from intrathoracic pressure rises or from attention pneumo. The emergent response if you're faced with high pressures and hypotension is to disconnect the patient from the ventilator. If high intrathoracic pressures are the problem, then decompressing the thorax through the endotracheal tube may be sufficient to temporarily fix the problem. So this is just disconnecting the ventilator and manually compressing the chest wall. However, if they have a tension pneumothorax, then they're going to need some kind of decompression of the pleural space, either with a thoracostomy or a needle. Disconnecting the ventilator is, of course, not a long-term solution. So how should we appropriately ventilate these patients? Um, the simple answer, again, is probably very slowly. The best thing resource I've probably seen on this is a paper by David Tuxon from the late 1980s and the more recent podcast he recorded with the Intensive Podcast. Again, these are all linked in the show notes. A fairly simple summary of his strategy is a respiratory rate of around 8 to 10 breaths a minute with a tidal volume of somewhere around 700 to 800 mils. So without even touching the IE ratio on your ventilator, you will end up with an expiratory time of around four seconds. Tuxon argues that there's very little to be gained by <clears throat> prolonging expiration beyond this or lowering your minute volume beyond it. The 1980s paper provides some data to back this up. You will undoubtedly get high um, peak pressures on the ventilator and that will reflect airway resistance rather than the pressure being felt at the alveoli. Plateau pressures here are important um, to ensure safe um, ventilation and an aspirational goal of less than 25 centimetres of water seems very reasonable. Volume versus pressure control is a great debate, um, it seems, but my own preference would be volume control for what it's worth, just to ensure that the minute volume is delivered. Um, and finally, my preference would be to have these people deeply sedated and even paralysed, I suppose, but there is an association between paralysis and a necrotic myositis, particularly in asthmatics, um, and that can be an issue in weaning and rehab, and this is actually quite distinct from the usual ICU-acquired weakness and myopathy, so perhaps um, paralysis is a little bit further down your rescue list than it might normally be. For further references here, the Internet Book of Critical Care is a great post-range physiology as always. I've linked to the talk I give at the European Society for Emergency Medicine in 2021 and a link to the David Tuxon um, podcast and uh, the paper from 1987 also. Hopefully this was useful and I'll speak to you next time. Bye. <laughs>